0: This is class five, CD three of five. Page 103, market counters, money go round. Understand, I've been studying the stock market since 1984, literally every single day since 1984. And in that process, I've learned to step back and see the ebb and flow the ups and downs of the market and that they happen at almost the same place, almost the same time, all the time. I've written it down into a calendar format. We'll go through it pretty quickly right here. It's pretty self-explanatory. There's a few things I will point out that students have gotten wrong in the past so that you new folks don't get wrong in the future. January, February, earnings season, excellent time of year to make money in the stock market. A monkey can throw darts at the market and make money. Do not confuse this with talent or ability. Now, that, that, that part right there, okay, that, everything I've just said to that point, does anything right there say up? No. Nothing right there says up. It says excellent time of the year to make money in the market. Nothing there says up. Now. It says, expect profit-taking in both mid-January and February. Does profit-taking mean going down? No. No. There are people that make money in the stock market when it falls. So, profit-taking would cause the market to rise. Profit-taking is the opposite of whatever it's been doing immediately in front of that. If the market has been declining, then profit-taking would cause a rising market. If the market has been going up, then profit-taking would mean coming down. It doesn't say coming down. It says profit-taking. It says look for heavier profit-taking at mid-February through the end of the month. Amazing to me. How people read things in, and, and really they're coming from the perspective of most of you that are new, and even those of you that are um, relatively new, having gone through the class once before, most of you are still operating from the way to make money in the stock market is when it rises instead of when it moves. You make money going up and down, and profit taking is the opposite of the previous move. March, warning season, look for a small pop after a sell-off at the end of February early in the month. Generally a tough, tired stock market. Basically what I want to point out here, the first of the months you would expect a pop up almost all the months in the year. Okay? It won't be true on all of them, but the first of the month there's always an area of a rise in the market typically present. You should be looking for those. Look for call entry points between the 15th and the end of the month, especially the last few days. April, earnings season, generally a good month. The 1st through the 10th, we look for a rising market. Now, that doesn't mean rising the entire time from the 1st to the 10th. It means sometime during that period of time, we're looking for a rising market. It amazes me again how many people, oh, it's supposed to go up for 10 days. No, no. It's supposed to go up during this 10 days, sometime in there, okay? It might start on the 1st and end on the 7th. It might start on the 5th and go to the 10th. During these 10 days is when we're looking for a rising market, okay? Tenth through the twentieth, expect a sell-off, that's tax time, okay? That doesn't mean crash, it doesn't even mean large, it just means people sell their vault stuff to pay taxes, I understand, okay? Twentieth until the end of the month is okay with most stocks stable to up. Most stocks stable, does that mean going up? No. Most stocks stable to up. So, you're going to see more stocks than not going nowhere with some stocks rising. Do you understand? That's typically what you see there. May, earnings season. It's a 50-50 month. The 1st through the 15th, stocks trend up as we finish up earnings. From the 15th to the end of the month, we expect heavy profit-taking. So, if we've been trending up, heavy profit-taking will mean declining. Everybody understand? June, page 104. Morning season. Tough, tired-acting market. You look for call-buying opportunities using the chart sometime between the 7th and the 22nd. The summer months can be very choppy or just plain dead. Prepare yourself for either one. The summer months almost always have very low volume. Almost always have very low volume. Watch for call buying entry points the last two or three days of the month. Now think about it. Please be aware. Be prepared to hear Bob Pisani coming out on CNBC and screaming There's no volume. 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 At least five times a day, every single day, from the middle of May into late August or early September. That's what he does, okay? He does it in such a way that you as new students typically go, this must be strange. It isn't. It's there every year. Same time, same station, there is no volume, you know, and he acts like it's never happened before when the reality is it happens all the time. Happens all the time. So, you have to be aware and not be concerned when he's screaming there is no volume, you know, one of these days we're going to do like an email thing to him, just bombard him and go, ain't supposed to be. Yeah, I mean really folks, there's not supposed to be. You shouldn't be concerned about it. Now it says watch for call buying entry points the last two or three days of the month because we would typically expect to see a pop the first of any month in that area, okay? Doesn't mean we're going to be buying in for the long term, but the first of most months are positive. A day, half a day, two days, I mean some little period of time, we expect a pop in there because of that. July. Earnings season. Can be good, but look for profit-taking mid-month. Another summer month, generally a choppy time in the markets. Use the profit-taking in mid-month to look for entry points on the charts, especially on stocks with August earnings or splits. We're always playing toward what? toward an upcoming event. We want to play toward an upcoming event. August. Earnings season. Earnings ends quickly. Usually a choppy market with a negative bias. Look for heavy profit taking. Even a, considered a sell-off, the last ten days of the month. Now, that doesn't mean crash, but it does, we expect heavier selling. It does say selling here. Market sliding down expecting that, okay? Now it says, watch the charts for buying entry points during the last few days for the post Labor Day bounce. Listen, there's an old adage on Wall Street that is terribly true. We talk about it a lot in this course. The trend is your friend. The trend is your friend. That's why I always want to know, what's the trend chart doing? Everything we start, starts with the trend chart. What's the trend chart doing? But understand, there's also a trend in the stock market, big money, I mean huge money. The net worth of all of us combined, one of those people, the net worth of all of us combined, those are traders on Wall Street on the floor all the time, okay? They go on vacation the three weeks going into Labor Day. They take their money with them. The market doesn't close, but they go on vacation. They leave the janitors in charge. Janitors are typically in charge of toilets, and that's pretty much what the market acts like. It's in the toilet. You should follow the trend and go on vacation the first two weeks with them. You don't have to go physically with them, but you need to go on vacation. Okay. But you want to come back a week ahead of them. Because see, when they come back, they're going to bring back their money, and they're going to put the money back in the market. Your objective is to be ahead of them by a week and look at some of that stuff floating around in the bowl going, that ain't really supposed to be there. Put on some gloves and dip some of that out of there. okay? I'm talking about the stuff that's not supposed to be there, okay? And understand, when they come back, they're going to put their money into those things as well, okay? And it will cause a pop in the market. Doesn't mean the market's going to take off and go up, it just means, just like if you were to deposit a million dollars into your bank account tomorrow, your bank account would rise. Do you understand? I am duh. Yes? You know, there would be a pop. It wouldn't happen the next day. Do you understand? It would have already popped. It was a single-day phenomenon. Do you understand? Yes? Okay. Now, September, warning season. Sometime during the first 10 days, look for an upward pop in the market, followed by a hard sell-off. Sometime. It's... Sometime right after Labor Day, pop, goes to market, okay? It is usually intraday move, sometimes an all-day move. Extremely rarely is it something that lasts more than a day. And students miss it all the time. They miss it all the time because they got this idea that it's supposed to last for days, I have a student, um, he's from, well, he lives in West Virginia, he's not really from there, but he lives in West Virginia, uh, Panhandle area, and he's a retired guy, and he, he emailed me, and it's a couple years ago, and he said, you know, uh, it's, right, it's right in August, September, and he said, I'm, is, is there not going to be a pop after Labor Day? I'm looking for the pop. I said, George? I said, does your... Q-charts working? He said, yeah. I said, well, what did the stock market do yesterday after lunch? He said, well, after lunch, the the Dow went up 169 points after lunch. I said, pop! (laughs) What's next here in September? He said, September usually stinks after the 10th. Hmm. sometimes in the first 10 days, we'll look for an upward pop in the market followed by a what? Hard sell-off. September usually stinks after the 10th. I said, George, what's the Dow doing today? He said, it's down 204 points. I said, hard sell-off. He said, crap, I have missed it again. I said, yes. <laughs> He's looking for something that lasts for days and it was something that lasts today, intraday. It might last a whole day. It could be just an afternoon, but tomorrow it isn't gonna be there. They just deposited the money. <laughs> Do you understand? If you're working eight to five, you're probably not gonna be able to play that pop. You should be able to see that pop. Do you understand when you come home? Oh, look at that white candle. Don't get excited about your white candles, probably going to be a red candle the next day. But that's just a pop that takes place. If we are in a week early on that, that little pop we might be able to get some profit on. Do you understand? But you're not likely to be able to, it's not going to be an in today and moving for days phenomenon here, it just doesn't really usually happen like that, okay? Now. Think how prophetic that statement is, September usually stinks after the 10th in 2001. The bottom line there, look for buying opportunities on the charts the last few days of the month. There are people in this room tonight that took the class and were already trading real money September 10th, 2001. They should be phenomenally wealthy today, they're not. That line was still there. You that get Q charts, get your Q charts and scroll them back to just about any stock you want to see. The last few days of September 2001, if you had purchased there, you would be wealthy. You would have been awfully close to fully funded in widows and orphans by January. But people did not do that. Because they were afraid. You have to learn. When everybody is afraid, it is a place to be bold. And when everybody has no fear, it is time for you to leave. You have to learn. You have to learn. My thought process is pretty simple. God has always provided for me. What are you afraid of? If now is the time to hit enter, enter. What are you afraid of? Nothing to be afraid of. What if I lose all the, all my money? God will provide for you in a different way. He has for me all of my life. Okay? I have total faith in that. So I hit enter. When it's time to hit enter, I hit enter. I just don't hit enter willy-nilly all over the place. That's gambling. Working at this. Learning to work at this and know. I'm supposed to hit enter right here, you hit enter right here, well what if it goes away? That's perfectly okay, because God will provide from another source. You got to learn to have enough faith to hit enter. You got to do enough work to have enough faith to hit enter right there, folks. Action conquers fear, faith conquers fear. You get faith from God automatically by accepting it, but you also get faith in the market by doing the work so that you know this is the time, hit enter right there. So many students didn't hit enter, they could have made a fortune by January, literally funding their retirement choice. You have to learn, you have to learn. Do the work so that you're prepared, do the work so that you're prepared. Page 105, October, earnings season. It's a scary time in the market. Most major crashes have happened in October. Mutuals, that's mutual funds, must sell their losers by the 30th for tax purposes, causing a lot of downward pressure on the market. Play with caution, taking profits quickly. Look for entry points on the charts during the last three or four days of the month. The last few days to a week are generally a great place to purchase vault stocks. Watch the daily and weekly Christmas cross for this purchase decision. Now listen folks, I make my vault purchases. In September okay historically in September occasionally in August rarely but occasionally in July almost never in October even though it tells you to do it in October why because understand typically September is the worst month of the year in the stock market so if I can buy out of the lows that are established in September then it is going to go higher. Everybody understand? In all likelihood, everybody understand that? Okay. When am I selling vault stocks? Never. Never. What if it crashes in October after I bought it in September? It It doesn't matter. I'm not selling it. You understand? Why does it tell you new students to wait until the 25th of October? Because you're not committed to that decision yet. If you bought in September and it crashed in October, most of you would vomit your stocks right back up. I will not do that. Eventually, you will not do that. Once you are committed, I'm going to buy this and hold it forever, then you'll buy sometime in September, whenever the charts tell you to. The reason this tells you to wait until the 25th is because historically, there haven't been that many crashes after October before January. So you can buy at the end of October, be higher in January, and feel good about yourself. That's why it's there. But after a little bit of experience and looking at these things, you'll be going, well, you know, a smarter choice would have been to buy this in September. Yes it would. Once you're committed, I'm going to buy it when it's a smart choice, and I don't care what the market does in October, then you buy it when it's the smartest choice. Until then, your smartest choice will be somewhere around the 25th of October, okay? Now, November, earnings season. If there is no October crash, and the markets if there's no October crash, the markets will fly sometime during those first two or three weeks of November. Sometimes fly means rise, okay? If there is no October crash, you're looking for a rising market sometime during those first two or three weeks of November. Now, it doesn't say for two or three weeks. It says sometime during those two or three weeks. Look for heavy profit taking from Turkey Day through the end of the month. December, warning season. Expect heavy profit-taking continuing from November until sometime between the 5th and the 8th. You look for buying opportunities on the charts around the 5th to the 8th. That doesn't mean for a long move. It just means a reverse of that quite quickly. Can be a good month. If it's a good month, it's known as the Santa Claus effect. Santa Claus effect. I mean, think about it. Everybody's happy, happy, joy, joy. You know, it doesn't make no difference. You know, what, what gasoline costs, we're still going to Grandma's house. You know, it doesn't make any difference what airline tickets cost, we're still going to visit somebody. You know, it doesn't make any difference, we are burning up the credit cards, <laughs> you know, Walmart loves us, everybody loves us, everybody's happy, 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 happy. You know, we all are clinically depressed in the middle of January when all those bills come in, but in December we're all happy about it. You know, everybody's happy, market rises, market rises. That doesn't happen all the time, but when the market does rise in December, it's known as the Santa Claus effect, okay? Now, it's it is still a warnings month, so you can have big swings in the market. You, it, it can be. you got to be aware of that, okay? So be aware that it's going to be choppy, and it may be big swings. It is warning season. Okay, Look for major buying opportunities on the charts between the 15th and the 22nd. Now here's the thing too, major buying opportunities. Buying opportunities would be for playing what comes next, do you understand? Buying opportunities, does that mean making money on going up in the market? Does buying opportunities mean making money going up in the market? Now, if the market's going down, buying opportunities would be buying what? Puts. Do you understand? Buying opportunities. Too many students, buying opportunities, got to buy stock, got to buy calls, market's going to rise. It does not say that. Post-Christmas, look for major buying opportunities on the chart between the 15th and the 22nd. Market suffers Christmas hangover from the 22nd to the end of the month. So says look for entry points during the last two or three days of the month. Now, for what? The pop that might take place in January. Understand, big understanding nugget here. All of these ups and downs, this is the history of what takes place in the marketplace. Do we trade the history? No. We trade the what? Evidence. Evidence. We trade the evidence. When the current charts match our history, we trade bold there. When the current charts don't match our history, we either don't trade or we trade with supreme caution. evidence. We always trade the evidence. When the evidence matches our history, we're bold there. But when the evidence doesn't match our history, we either don't trade it all or we trade the evidence with supreme caution. And I won't embarrass the veteran students in this room, but there are a lot of them that bought calls on the last day of December without any evidence showing that the market was going up, zero evidence. Weren't taught to do that. Weren't taught to do that. We trade the evidence. When the evidence matches our history, when the evidence matches our earnings research, we trade bold there when it doesn't, we either don't trade or we trade the evidence with supreme caution. You've got to understand, it's not just a chart thing. Just not a chart thing. It's a chart, it's a history, it's an event awareness, bringing the whole picture together, trading well. Page 106. Do big picture to little picture here right quick it's very simple every trade you do you gotta do this every single trade this is how you view the market market calendar that's market history trading zone awareness how does that act in the trading zone weekly charts that is your stock charts for determining the trend begins there daily futures chart that is the trend of the futures. Market affecting news. What am I talking about there? I'm talking about news that affects the market for some time. Okay? Uh, the possible war in Iraq affected the news for months. The actual war in Iraq affected the news from uh, affected the market for months. Okay? That is market-affecting news. We're not talking about a news item today that causes the market to go down, or an A news item today that causes the market to go up. That a day or two from now it's forgotten about. We're talking about market affecting news that continues that push, okay? One way or the other, doesn't make any difference. Upcoming events. Upcoming events could be stock splits, earnings, could be uh, an economic report. If we're playing a, if we're playing like a, a retail stock. We would have to know when the retail sales report's coming out. Our research on that retail stock would have to tell us, hey, going into the retail report, this is what happens. Coming out of that retail report, this is what happens. That's an event awareness that is going to affect our positions, okay? Daily charts. Stock charts. It's going to either be a trend or a decision chart, we've got to know that. Other decision charts, if we're looking at something smaller than that, intraday market history. All of you that are doing the work, page 19, 20, and 21 in your class number one manual, tells you that you should print off the five-minute charts and study them every day on the stocks that you're trying to become intimate with. That is true. But you should also print off the Dow, NASDAQ, um, and probably OEX five-minute chart so that you become intimate with the market and how the market does Internally every day. You start to learn how the market think about this. I've got a student, um, very successful young man, 26 years old, very successful student, and he used to he'd get in a trade and he'd get out of the trade at lunchtime. Market would be going up, he'd be in the trade, everything is fine. At lunchtime, the market would go to lunch, literally. The vast number of traders would be at lunch, and the market would sag. They were at lunch. He'd get out of the trade. It was backing up. Ah! Got to get out of the trade. He'd come back from lunch, they'd come back from lunch, and the trade would keep on going up. It'd be going up for days. And he was out of his trade, and, and finally, he, he, you know, he said, come to, he said, ah, ah, something's not right. I'm getting in like I'm supposed to. Everything is perfect. Everything is lovely. At lunchtime, you know, I'm getting out of the trade. He's backing up. I said, why? I said, market's got to eat too. They go to eat, backs up. You shouldn't be out of that trade. Oh. He wasn't aware of the, what the market did internally during the day. By studying the five-minute charts of the Dow, NASDAQ, and OEX, you get a very good idea of how the market acts during the day, day after day after day after day after day. When does it go to lunch? When's it come back from lunch? How, how and when does it get up in the morning? How does it act going into specific economic events? How does it act going into the first of the month, middle of the month, end of the month, Christmas, summertime, different trading zones? You got to be intimate with the marketplace. I know the lady that works for us, um, and she's also a student, and she benefits a lot uh, from, from being a student and working for us. I mean, we're going to have her sign a contract that she can never retire or fire her. I think that's what we're going to do. Yeah. But, I mean, all the time, we'll, we'll be going to lunch, and, I, and I'll go, okay, when we get back from lunch, the market's going to be at this price. And we'll go to lunch and come back, and she said, you're like 30 cents off. So, yeah. I said, and that's fixing to look like this. Today, I mean, I called the drop today, almost to the minute. You know, I said, this thing is fixing to plummet. Yeah. You know? And I walked out walked in. She said, Look. I said, Yeah, that's about what I figured. You know, she, just tell me I'm gonna be able to do that. All depends on how much work and study you put in. That's all it is, is work and study. Day after day after day after, and it's boring, it is boring, but it pays well, okay? Action chart, action chart, trend, decision, action, big picture to little picture. Most students, and please understand, if you work eight to five, you don't use an action chart. We'll talk about what you guys do before the class is over with. You don't use an action chart if you can't see the market during the day. But every single trade is big picture to little picture thought process. What students typically do is do it one time. Big picture little picture. And then they get focused on that little bitty charts, vibrating. Not the big charts. Not the big picture, and they make little bitty chart reactions. That they're out of a trade that they shouldn't be out of because it vibrated on a little chart. If you're doing two trades today, both trades are done this way, big picture, little picture. It isn't something you do one time, it's something you do on every single trade. That's the way you become successful at this, if you do it on every single trade. Now, on the back of the previous page in your notebook here, if you want to write this down, this is a good spot for it, um, I'm going to tell you how to insure your vault. It's real simple to me, and you just have to write it out there. It's not that big a deal. First of all, should be at the top of that page. It's a lot like the insurance play, okay? That's what it should be. It's a lot like your insurance play, all right? Now, The reality of this is there are certain times of the year that we just expect the market to be down, normal, it's normal, nothing nothing surprising about that. Um, Typically the market has some kind of a spring high level, not not a new high for the year, but a, a higher level reached sometime in the spring, and then the market almost always is lower in August or September, than whatever that spring high level is. Well, so sometime in the spring, we're going to ensure our vault against that decline. Now, I'll give you just a hypothetical example of this, and, and with real numbers for you to write, or not with with numbers for you to write down, so that you'll understand this. Okay, what we're going to do is when we know the market is going to go down, we're basically going to buy puts on our vault stocks. That's what we're going to mean a basic thing, that's what we're going to do. Now, we're going to assume that you have 1,000 shares of GE, and we're going to say that GE is $40.25 a share, okay? Just throwing out a number, and it's not there, just so you understand, you know? But we're just going to give it that price. Now, you got 1,000 shares, and we're going to say it's February, since we're right here we'll call it February. We expect GE to be dramatically lower in the summertime. It's not going to be this low, but we're going to say it's going to, we, we would expect it to fall to 20 bucks. It won't fall that far, but we expect it to fall hypothetical example to 20 bucks. Do we want to sell our GE stock? No, no. We're gonna keep it for how long? Forever, okay? So, what you're going to do is you're going to buy the, and we're saying this is January, this is February this year, okay, so make sure it's, you know, February 2005. You're going to purchase the January 2006 $40 puts. January 2006 $40 puts. Doesn't make any difference what price they are. Now, you want to make sure that you buy, in this case, 12 contracts. You're purchasing 12 contracts. Even though you only own a thousand shares, you're purchasing 12 contracts. You always want to make sure you're purchasing about 20% more than you actually own. You're purchasing 20% more coverage than you actually own. Now, just for simple math purposes, we're going to say that GE does fall from $40 to 25 bucks. We thought it was going to go to 20, but it only goes to $25. Okay. How much have those puts increased in value? $15. Thereabouts. Everybody understand? Okay. How much has the stock lost in value? $15. Everybody understand? Everybody understand? Okay. How much has your vault lost in value? zero. Do you understand? Because the puts have gained $15 and the stock itself lost $15. Everybody understand? Okay. Now, the reason we purchased the extra 20% of coverage is because there will be some time decay, but our option doesn't expire till January. We're saying it's $15 at the end of August or September. Doesn't expire until January, and the time decay is what? Rear end loaded? So we're not seeing massive amounts of time decay. The put has gone up in value. We own 20% more coverage than we actually owned. We might actually have gained some value here, okay, uh, overall, but we certainly haven't lost any. Everybody follow me there? Okay. So it's the end of August or September. We look on the weekly charts. And notice that the weekly charts for GE are near the bottom of their scales, okay, near the bottom of the Bollinger Bands, not necessarily on the bottom of Bollinger Bands, but it looks like this thing is bottoming out on the weekly charts. Everybody understand? We close the puts. We sell the puts, okay? We got the profit. Everybody understand? Guess what we're going to do with the profit? Buy more GE. Do you understand? Your vault is always going to be flat or rising, always. The young man I was talking about, I know I embarrassed him the other night uh, in the RTP class uh, in Rocky Mount, but I I didn't call him by name, but I mean he knew I was talking about him. Um, I would turn over every dime I have to him to trade. Just tell me how much money I need to write out every single month. You know, out of that, I've turned over every dime. Took this class when he was 19 years old, something like that. And, and did it. Did it exactly as instructed. When I said, you need to go buy a book. He never, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a broke college student. I can't, I can't afford a book. He just went and got the book. Didn't make any difference what he had to do to have the book. He went and got the book. You know? Didn't make any difference what he had to do. He got the book. I said, you need to have Q charts, okay? He did everything he had to do, have cue charts. No questions asked. He had to have cue charts. That's what you got to do. You got to have cue charts, yeah? He's 26 years old. They have no debt. When he got married, he wrote a check for his house, yeah? They drive cars that he wrote a check for, 26 years old. it's not just his success why I would turn over my money to him to trade. You see, while he had learned to do this, his mother wanted to do this. Not take the class, wanted to do the market. And she went to him and said, teach me to do this. He said, I will not. I signed a non-compete, non-disclosure agreement that I will not violate. I will not tell you how to do this. Go take the class." She lived at the time in southern Georgia. I'd have never known. But he has more honor in his little finger than some of you have in your whole body. He wouldn't violate the non-compete, non-disclosure agreement, and I'd have never known. His mother took the class, Columbia, South Carolina. Retook he here in Rocky Mount. At the time I was doing after hours sessions. We went after hours and she was in tears a little bit. And she said, I'm in southern Georgia and there's nobody there doing this. Who would I ask questions of? I said, Good golly, you got the best person in the world to ask. Your son is the best person in the world to ask questions. She said, He won't help me do this. I said, Why do you say that? She said, Well, I wanted to know how to do this before I ever took the class, and he refused to help me. I said, that's because you raised an honorable young man, and you ought to be stoked because he would not help you. Now that you've taken the class, go ask him. I promise you, you have all the help. you will want. And he does. now." He looked at those charts in December this year, weekly charts. You always ensure looking at the weekly and daily charts. You always ensure looking at the weekly and daily charts. He looked at the weekly and daily charts of the overall market and of his individual stocks that his mama has in the vault. And he called his mama and said, Mama, We need to insure your vault. The market is about to go down." And she said, well, I looked in here and it says there should be a pop. She said, Mama, look at the weekly and daily charts on the market. Look at the weekly and daily charts on your vault stocks. The market is fixing to go down, Mama. Look at the daily futures charts, Mama. Market's fixing to go down. So they insured her vault. You can go look at the chart yourself, folks. From the end of December to mid-January, the market did nothing but fall, and all of her stuff was insured against loss because he doesn't have his head stuck in the sand. He does what you're supposed to like you're supposed to. When the weekly and daily charts are set up to go down, you insure. Even if it is against the market calendar, okay? But you always will insure when it is with the market calendar too. Weekly daily charts are gonna go down, you insure. If you're wrong and the stock goes up, do you understand that's okay? Because the stock is gaining value, you're fine, do you understand? But if you're right. Everybody else will be gnashing their teeth as the world is coming to an end and they're losing money. And please understand when you're fully insured in your vault, you have to learn to shut up around town. Because when the whole world is going down, you're going, go, baby, go. I hope it goes out of business. You could die there. You have to just zip it, you could get hurt there. You always insure 20% more. And you always make sure that your purchase is well beyond the time you're expecting to close the trade, so that the time decay in the option is rear-end loaded. You want at least three months beyond where you expect to close the trade. That's the minimum, okay? That's the minimum, you want at least three months of, that's the, that's, the, that's the minimum amount of time beyond where you expect to close the trade that you purchase your insurance and your, your vault is always insured or rising. Now I usually get news to Go, hey wait a minute, what if you had WorldCom? You throw a party. What if you had Enron? You throw a party. Because understand, the weekly and daily charts for those companies were going down a long time before they were bankrupt. You should have been insured. Do you understand? Now, let's just, I don't even, I, I never traded Enron. We'll just use a hypothetical number. Let's say Enron was a hundred bucks. It'd been in 105 and going down. And you realize, hey, weekly and daily charts are going down to this thing, I need to insure. Do ever understand? So at $100, you got, you got, got 1,000 shares at 100 bucks, okay? And you go, I need to insure. So you buy, again, the January 06, if it was still in business, the January 06 $100 puts and you buy 12 contracts instead of 10 contracts, you ever understand? And Enron falls to a dollar by the summertime what you going to do you're going to you, you understand when you own the put you have the right truly to call the broker up and go i have the $100 puts on enron when you own a put you own the right to sell stock at a specific price so with the $100 put you literally have the right to call your broker and go i own the $100 puts on Enron. Enron's at a dollar. I'd like to exercise my puts. Sell the stock at $100 a share. You actually have the right to do that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'd sell the puts. Keep the stock. I've made $99 a share. Everybody understand? I take the $99, and by that time, you got to know, I don't think Enron's ever coming back, Jack. (laughs) But I take the $99 and buy GE. You understand? But I'm going to keep the thousand shares of Enron, what? In case it's actually a lottery ticket. If it goes away, it's now $1,000. If it goes to 10, it's a huge gain. Do you understand? But in short, it doesn't bother you. Folks, this is so easy to do. My vault has had one big loss. When was that? 9-11. If you went back and looked at the daily, weekly charts, I just closed insurance and just purchased vault stocks. 9-11, did I sell? No. I was buying for how long? Forever. Didn't bother, I mean, did, I mean you know, I'm not going to sell. If I sell the terrace wind, do you understand? It's the only big hit I've ever had. Everything was in condition to go up. You have to close insurance and buy false stocks. I just loaded up. Everything took a 20% hit. Everything was back where it was supposed to be by January. In January, when it turned over, everything was insured as it fell right on back down. It's easy to do. You gotta step away from the emotions to do it, but it's easy to do, it's easy to do. Your vault is always rising or insured, period, period. And there will be, uh, hopefully, never a time, though the possibility does exist, okay, hopefully there will never be another time when everything is ready to go up and you pile in and some foreign entity um, rears its ugly head again, you know. Regardless, I'm not selling. I'm not selling. I bought the vault. I, my kids already understand if they sell my GE, I will haunt them. Yeah? It's just, I mean, that's what you do. That's what you do. Now, page 107. Before we get to page 107, I go ahead and answer a question. There used to be a comment sheet in the, in the, in the manual. There's not a comment sheet in the manual anymore. Um, you have uh, the web TV address to use to to get on uh, the success email list if you want to and if you want to send in a comment that's fine you can email one there Uh, I've heard all of the complaints before there are no original ones anymore and I'm not changing anything so it doesn't matter Um, and if you want to compliment me I appreciate that too but uh, we're just not going to do it on a sheet anymore but uh, at this time I will answer question for you that um, all new people have at, at this point in time, and it, it's even understandable. But the answer to the question is probably more important, um, ultimately, than just about anything else that's taught in this class. Okay, and the question is: If you're doing so well in the market, why are you teaching this? Okay, the answer is a little more complicated than, than simple, um, as far as coming out. You should also understand that. I would say a prayer on the way to class number five, that the words come out in the way that God wants them to, to fit somebody that's in the room. Uh, it's always true, but different parts are emphasized at different times for whoever God has in the room that night and needs to hear it. But um, ultimately, it's a long story. It starts all the way back in Decatur, Illinois. I'm originally from Decatur, Illinois. Um, I mean, literally if you drew an X through through Illinois, you, you the, the X, the, the cross of that X would pretty much go right through Decatur, awful close to it. Um, and feel very blessed to have gone in, there to school in a public school system where all economic levels were represented. I went to school all my life with kids that were on food stamps and welfare and kids that were dropped off every day in a Rolls Royce at the front door all economic levels. There is no academies where I come from, okay? You go to public school or you go to Catholic school, that's it. That's all there is. And I feel very blessed about that, quite frankly, because um, unfortunately, and you guys don't have to agree with me, and I know some of you have your kids at the academies around here, you know, but uh, your kids don't learn to deal in the real world. You put them in an isolated world, not the real world, and you, they need to grow up in the real world because they've got to survive there. But I went through public school, was happy about that. I realized pretty early on that, you know, the, the, the wealthy kids, I mean, I, I, my family's lower middle class. I mean, really, um, both my parents worked. I, I, never, I never in my lifetime remember my dad not having two jobs, ever. Um, but I realized very early that the wealthy kids really weren't better than... The poor kids, they, yes, they, got, they lived in a nicer house, they had nicer cars, they got to go on vacations, had sporting equipment that we didn't necessarily have. But, you know, they weren't generally tough enough. Also understand, folks, some of you in this room, done quite well financially. But your kids are not better for it, they're worse for it. Because, unfortunately, it is inherent in parents to, we, we make the statement, we don't want our kids to go through what we went through, but folks, yes, you do, because what you went through made you who you are, and when you deprive your kids of that struggle, they're lesser for it, not better for it. Do You want your kids to struggle. One of the things that you want to do, truly, while while your kids are at home, take them to where you started. Take them to the piece of crap house you used to live in. Take them to the dumpy apartment you used to have. Let them see, that's where I began. Let them see where you began. So they understand it's okay to begin there. It's not okay to stay there, but it is perfectly okay to begin there. What a lot of kids do, they leave home and they expect to start where their parents are. And you all know you didn't start there. But your kids think they're supposed to. Wrong perception, your responsibility. Being a parent, your job, hate that word, your task, is to raise healthy, happy, well-adjusted, productive members of society. That is your task. It isn't to make their life easy. It is to raise happy, healthy, well-adjusted, contributing members of society. Don't, Don't let them miss the struggle. The struggle's good. The struggle's good for them. It was good for you. It might not have been pleasant, but it was good for you. I realized that the rich kids weren't tough enough in a lot of cases. They were pampered and we weren't. But I decided that I wanted to be wealthy while I was in grade school. And I went to the only people that I loved or cared about and asked the simple question, how do you become wealthy? I asked my parents my grandparents, and my aunts and uncles, how you become wealthy. To a person, they each said, get an education, keep your nose clean, and work hard. You become wealthy. How many of you found out that that's not true, okay? But I took them at their word. At 15 years old, I started working full-time. Didn't quit school, my dad would have killed me, okay? But I started working full time, going to school full time, wrestled at the state championship level, um, dated, or something has to give in that scenario, which means I just stopped sleeping for the most part. Um, Since I was 14, 15 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, I averaged four and a half, five hours sleep per night, still do, you can sleep when you're dead. You'll catch up. Sleep's a waste of time. Not productive. Worked all the time. Had a pretty low self-esteem. My parents, this has nothing to do with my self-esteem. My parents got divorced when I was about 12, something like that. Remarried relatively quickly. Um, My, uh, lived with my mother and my stepfather and the combined family there and my dad and my stepmother Basically moved to North Carolina, and uh, you know. But I, I, going through school, I'd always had a relatively low self-esteem. Didn't think I was very intelligent, quite frankly. Um, there was always I was always most everybody thinks everybody else is smarter than them. Truly, I didn't know I was intelligent until I was a senior in high school. Took a psychology class. It was supposed to be very difficult. Had very few um, quizzes or tests. <coughs> Major test is really going to be your grade because I worked I, I worked 48 to 50 hours a week while I was going to high school. Frequently, I'd get off at five o'clock or so in the morning. Had to be at school at eight, so I just laid my head on the desk. I wouldn't sleep, but you know I'm not participating in class discussions. You know when the when the teacher would call on me, I'd just look at him until he figured out I was probably stupid and. So he'd just call on somebody else to answer the question. I wouldn't even say I don't know. Took the test, and the teacher was a guidance counselor. Not mine, but a guidance counselor. And A few periods later, he called me out of my class to his office, and uh, he said, "Uh, I'd like you to explain the test to me. I don't know what you want to know, the test was a little difficult, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, I finished the test, I appreciate you putting the extra credit questions on there, I completed those, I think I did okay on the test." He said, okay, um, how come you never participate in class discussion? I said, well, if I know the answer, I don't need to impress other people with that knowledge, okay? If I don't know the answer, you learn by listening, not by talking. So, I just sat there and shut up until you call on somebody else, and they provide me with the right answer. He said, how about all the times you got your head on the desk? I said, well, I worked all night, I'm sleepy, so I got my head on the desk listening. He said, so you're not asleep? I said, no, if I was asleep, I'd be snoring, you know the difference. You know? He said, can you explain the other grades? I've pulled your transcripts. I know I'm not your guidance counselor, but I have access to this information. Could you explain these grades here? I said, what do you want to know? He said, how come you got an A in algebra here and you flunked algebra here? I said, that's easy. Good teacher, lousy teacher. It's pretty simple. He said, how about these other courses where you got good grades? I said, interested in the subject. He said, how about the ones with bad grades? I said, don't care about the subject. He said, well, I want you to know you got a 100% on the test. I said, cool. He said, nobody else got an 80. He said, I didn't know you was that smart. I said, I didn't know they were that dumb. (laughs) He said, are you going to college? I said, absolutely not. He said, can you explain to me why? I said, well, first of all, why do you think I should go to college? He said, young man, I've been doing what I do for 30 years. He said, in 30 years, I've never seen a brighter mind than yours. I went, wow, I didn't know. I said, well, I'm not going to college. I said, did you? He said, well, yes. I said, did the other teachers here go to college? He said, yeah, everybody here has at least a four-year degree. I said, well, that'd be why I'm not going. He said, I don't understand. I said, it was pretty simple. I already make more money than you. One of us is stupid. You need to understand, folks, I've had this attitude long before the stock market ever got here. (laughs) He said, you make more money than me. I said, I have a pretty good idea how much you make. I said, but I already make as much or more than you. Now one of us is stupid because I'm a senior in high school and you have a four-year degree. That makes one of us stupid for wasting time. He said, so you work. I said, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week, week after week after week. Yeah. I said, that's why my head's on the desk. I'm not asleep. I just got off work. He said, you're not going to college? I said, no. He said, you should. It's the first time when he told me that I was smart. I mean, think about it. My parents and grandparents told me I was smart, but they're supposed to. They're obligated. know? but it was the first time I I heard it from somebody that had no interest in the statement. I was surprised, but I wasn't going to college and didn't. My dad and stepmother was here in North Carolina. They called May of 1978 and asked me what I was going to do when I got out of high school. I said, Well. I'm going to kind of knock around the summer, work out what I can throughout the summer, and then I'm going uh, into the Marine Corps in the fall. And my dad, who, though he worked at Firestone all of my conscious existence, um, prior to that he was in the Marine Corps. And uh, he said, you're going into the Marine Corps. I said, yes. He said, why? I said, well, there are no better paying jobs than the one I currently have here in town, so I'm going into the Marine Corps. He said, you're going to the Marine Corps for a job. I said, yeah. He said, that would be the wrong reason. He said, you have vacation available. I said, yeah. He said, you need to take your vacation as soon as you get out of school, get your butt down here to North Carolina and see if you can find a better job, better paying job here than you had there. And if not, you can always go back and get in the Marine Corps. I said, okay. And basically I did that. Came down here and got a job. Um, How many of you are from the Rocky Mount area? Raise your hands very good. All right. Um, y'all know uh, Harris Teeter over here? Yes? Okay. Well, it didn't used to be Harris Teeter. Twenty-five years ago, it was Safeway, and I worked there. I was the produce manager there. Eighteen years old, 1978, I'm the produce manager. I'm making eh, $27,000 a year in 1978. You know? As a high school graduate, that's, that's knocking it pretty much in the dust at 18 years old. You know, with overtime and bonuses, I can push it to 30 grand. But you see, my parents, grandparents, and aunts and uncles had told me to work hard. Do you understand? They would not let me work more than a, a little bit of overtime. I was on salary and they, they let you work a little bit of overtime, okay? So I got a job. At Terrytown Mall, at a sporting goods store, family owned sporting goods store, was there because I was trading time for money. Everybody understand? Working hard. I have I had time, so I'm, I'm exchanging time for money. I'm living at my parents' home, had car insurance, my only expense. Living the life of Riley. But was frustrated because I knew that as hard and as much as I was working, I could not afford to purchase a lot, let alone build a home, in Candlewood, which at the time was the exclusive area. And I wanted to do that. I was frustrated. About that same time in North Carolina, they started requiring that you got you had to have two forms of ID in order to cash a personal check. All I had was my North Carolina driver's license. I went to my dad and said, how do you get a second form of ID? He said, look, you got a management position, you're working another job, you have no debt, you have no expenses, you know, go to your local bank and fill out a Visa and a MasterCard application, you'll get those, that won't be a problem, and then you'll go from there, you'll have your forms of ID. I said, okay. I did that and got them, no problem. You know, I got to thinking that was pretty simple. You know, there are other banks in town. I bet you can get more than one Visa card and MasterCard. So I did those same things at the other banks and got Visa and MasterCard from every bank in town. And then I realized, do you know there are other banks around the country? So I started getting applications and sending out those applications and getting those credit cards. And I wasn't abusing them. I'm just having fun with the fact that I can get these. This is so cool. Yeah. I used to sit there and literally take a calculator and add up how much I could be in debt if I wanted to. Decided, you know, it's not a smart idea to bike with cash, it's late because I was carousing around drinking a lot, driving around, having a good time. And so I got gas cards, and since I'm not, I'm not really specifically th- thrilled with any particular gas company, I got all of the gas cards. You never know where you'll be when you run out. So I had all of the gas cards, and, you know, just, just to try it on for size. I went ahead and got the American Express card, see if you would get that at 18 years old. You can. There was a point in time I was carrying over 48 credit cards. Used to carry two wallets. I loved it when they would go, how are you paying for this? And I'd go, take your pick. Oh. Yeah, I was the fastest credit card in the East. There you go. I was at the sporting goods store one day. I'm very frustrated because I'm realizing I can't afford to live in Candlewood. And those young men that worked there, they went down the mall. I knew they had hid their wallet under. They, they used to always hide their wallet underneath the counter in case they were robbed. Had no money with them. They'd go down the mall and come back with new clothes. I, truly, when I first started working there, because i never met the family before when I first started working there, I thought they were stealing them. Finally, you know, when their dad wasn't there one day, I said, hey, how y'all get the clothes? They said, well, we have an account there. I said, what do you mean you have an account there? They said, it's like a credit card except we don't really have a piece of plastic. We just go in, pick something up off the rack and go put it on my account, walk out. I said, oh, that'd be cool. I'd like to have an account there. I figured, you know, even though I couldn't live in Candlewood, I could certainly dress like I could. They said, oh, not a problem. If you go down there, fill out a credit card applic or a credit application, put our name down as your only reference, they will call us before you get back, and we'll get you set up with an account there. I said, all right. So on break, I boogied right on down there and did that. They called before I got back, and they, oh, gushed all over me. Oh, man, on the way over there where he works there, part-time, we're going to keep him here as long as he'll stay with us. You know, lives at home, got no debt, terrific credit rating. So, that clothing store gave me an unlimited credit rating at this time by 19 years old. So, and I started using it. Using turned into abusing very quickly. And, oh, good golly. I mean, I... As you can tell, I read a lot. Anything I'm interested in, I read a lot. So, there were books out at the time called, The Power Look Book. Which means if you dress right, they shower you with money just cause you look good, you know? But, you know, Armani suit, $6,000 to put up fruits and vegetables. You would go to Safeway and you would swear I, I was going to a funeral, you know, I mean, what happened? You know, nothing. You know, look good. Learn what ecru is, you know, it's a color just for you guys that don't know, okay? It's not quite white, it's not quite eggshell, it's called ecru. Shirts of every color, clothes, pants, of every, $150, $200 slacks, $1,000 sport coat, $100 shirts, 120 to $180 silk ties, oh man, do I look good, I mean I look good, all the time, I mean I look good. Came out of the grocery store one day and I was driving a 71 White Firebird that I bought when I was 16 years old for $1,200 cash, and because I'm from Illinois and we actually do have winter there. The salt and sand and cinders had caused a lot of body cancer. Rear corner panels, you could literally poke your fingers through it. It was nasty looking. It was, at that point in time, it was was originally ivory, but it was now two-tone. Ivory and several different colors of rust. Come out one day, about to get in the car, and the sun hit just right, and I could see a reflection of myself in the window. Man, I look good, and then it hit me, oh man, but I'm driving this. That's not acceptable. Went left, went straight to the car dealership. Now you got to think. Think about the car dealer. You know, some guy pulls up in his dress to the nines, standing there, there looking at the car. He comes up, he said, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'll be driving this home. He said, okay. He said, "Uh, what are you going to put down? I said, uh, point in my car. He said, no, what are you going to put down? (laughs) I said, I don't want to put nothing down. And this was before the nothing down stuff, folks. He said, we don't do nothing down. I said, what's the minimum you take? He said, uh, 500 bucks. I said, I've got that much. Take a check? Yeah. Now, I want, I want, I want to make sure I want a full tank of gas. He said, yes sir. Please understand, that was the negotiations. I paid sticker. I got a full tank of gas out of it, though. $500 down. Now I look good driving, and I look good standing. I'm happy. And I had been using my gas cards and using my credit cards a little bit. But I'd also been treating my parents horribly, coming and going like I want when I wasn't working, staying out till all hours of the night. I remember screaming at my mother one time because she hadn't ironed my favorite shirt. Came home from work one day, wasn't scheduled to be at the sporting goods store. My dad was home, which was a little unusual because he, he worked basically 8 to 5 at Firestone at that time. I got home about a quarter after 4, he was already home. Started head in to change my clothes and my dad said, ho, ho, ho. I said, yeah. He said, we're going out to dinner, just you and me, going to be like guys night out, mom's not going. I said, cool. He said, I'm buying, he said, but you can pick wherever you want to go. I said, okay. Anywhere, he said, anywhere, that's okay. Remember J.R.'s House? That's where we're going. I said, "Dad, understand. I'm going to get dressed. You need to do best you can. You will be going with me, and we'll be taking my car." He said, "Okay." We get out there. Oh, he said, "Order anything you want." He said, "Don't forget the appetizer." Oh, ordered appetizer. Oh man, was the food good? Yo, appetizer. Salad, crispy lettuce. I mean, you, and you got to understand, I know a lot about fruits and vegetables. Oh, it was good. Steak, man, you could have cut that steak with butter knife. Throughout the whole meal, my dad kept going, How's your meal? I said, Dad, this is terrific. Got dessert, ate the dessert. He said, oh. he said How was everything? I said, Dad, this was the best meal I've ever eaten. He said, was it? I said, it was. He said, your, your whole world's fixing to change, it's going to change right now. He said, effective immediately, you owe me $25 a week rent. He said, effective immediately, your mama no longer does your laundry. He said, you can use our washer and dryer, our soap and, and that kind of stuff for laundry, but only if you do all the laundry in the house. Otherwise you take your young butt to the laundromat. He said, effective immediately, your mama isn't cooking for you. You can't eat any of the food in my house. You can bring food into the house, you can cook it, eat it, but you have to clean up after yourself. Your mama's not cleaning up or cooking for you." He said, effective immediately. He said, if I come home and I know your young butt has been home and that trash can in the kitchen is full and it hasn't been emptied. He said, when you return home, you need to understand It will be emptied, but you'll be able to find its contents spread in your bed." I said, let me get this straight. You want me to pay rent. You want me to take out the trash. You want me to buy, cook, and clean up after my own meals. You want me to do my own laundry and do yours too? SHOVE IT OLD MAN, I'M MOVING OUT. HE SAID, I'LL HELP. THIS IS CLASS FIVE, CD4 OF FIVE. THE NEXT DAY OFF, WE GO INTO MY BEDROOM, AND I START TAKING THE BED APART. AND MY DAD SAID, HO, 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 WHAT ARE YOU DOING? I SAID, I'M TAKING THE BED APART. HE SAID, HO, 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 BE MY BED. THIS AIN'T YOUR BED. He said, I said, I sleep here. He said, yes, I allow you to sleep on this bed. It is my property. I said, well, he said, don't look at the chest of drawers either. That's mine. I said, well, what is mine? He said, all the crap that you brought with you from Illinois and all those ridiculous clothes you have. Now, at that time, I had six dollars. In my checking account, and zero money in savings. I was wearing it, driving it, or drinking it. That's what I was doing. Okay, I had no money. I said, "Well, in that case, I just need you to hold the door open." So I took all my clothes, my, the stuff that I had, threw them in the car, drove to the car, uh, drove to the, the grocery store, drove to Safeway, talked to the manager there, said, "Is there anything you can do for me?" I had to, Move out of my house unexpectedly. So let me make a few phone calls. Made a few phone calls, and he called the manager of the Villager Apartments right back here. Got me an apartment without having to pay any kind of deposit. Just walk in, sign the lease, put my clothes up. Please also understand, folks, you that are parents, your job is to raise happy, healthy, well adjusted, contributing members of society. But your job is also to make them prepared for being that. Most of you don't talk about money in your house. You're ashamed of it. You're ashamed of how little you make and embarrassed by how much you owe. And you don't talk about that to your kids. And your kids are not prepared to be out there in the real world. And I was not. Yes, I could cook and clean and and do everything internally in a house to take care of myself, but I was not physically responsible, wasn't prepared. I put up all the stuff. you got to understand in my lifetime up to that point, I lived in two locations, that apartment being the third in my entire lifetime. I lived at my home in Illinois. I lived at my home here in North Carolina with my parents, and I moved into this apartment. It's the only only homes I've ever known, okay? I get the apartment. I'm, I'm stoked about it. I am stoked about it. I got my own bachelor pad out from under the thumb of tyranny. I do what I want, when I want. I am stoked about it. Put my clothes up, middle of the day, middle of the morning at this point in time. I went over to my light switch, turned my lights on. Got a bulb in it. Went to the. <laughs> I went down to the apartment manager. Hey, apartment ain't got no electricity in there. He said, "Did you turn it on?" I said, "No, I didn't turn it on." Where you do that at? I thought it was like a switch or something you threw it somewhere. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He said, "You got to go to the city Rockingham out. Have utilities turned on." I said, "Oh, all right, no problem." Got on down there. I said, hey. Got my bachelor pad. Need electricity. Water. Need utilities. She said, yes, sir. Fill out these forms. Okay. (laughs) Mr. Williams. "Uh Uh-huh. You've never had service in your name before? Ever? No. Said, we need a deposit of $300. I said, for what? I'm not moving. I'm not not buying the place. I'm just renting it. They said, don't make no difference. You've got to have a deposit. I I, got $6. $300. Crap, I'm going to get $300. Hold, don't don't, don't do anything with paperwork. Just set aside. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Jumped in the car, ATM machine, master card, 300 bucks. There you go. Utilities. Came in, looked around. I need to call my girlfriend and let her know. That's a pad. Not a phone in sight. I went down to the manager's office. Hey! There's no phone. He said, you have to buy your phone. No. I mean, you got to understand, folks, the house in Illinois that I was living in is the same house that my parents had had originally been in, and, and they got divorced. My mother got the house and stuff, and it still had the same phones it's always had. I moved to North Carolina. When I walked in, my parents had a phone. They still have that phone today, 25 years later. We don't change phones. I thought they came with the place. I ain't never seen them buy a phone. He said, you got to buy your own phone. Where do you do that at? He said, what well, telephone company down there by you know, uh, the old Kmart? Okay. Got my phone, went in, plugged it up, jacks are dead. Now, what a crock. Hey, buddy, I got my phone, but your jacks don't work. He said, "Did you think to have your phone service turned on while you were there?" And, no, I really hadn't thought about that. All right, hey, I need my phone service on. Okay, tell it to We need a three hundred dollar deposit. I kind of figured that. Hang on, be right back. Phones on. Walking around the house, looking around. You know, I, I'm going to take a shower before too long. I don't have a shower curtain. need a shower curtain. Got to go get that. Man, if I take a shower, got to have towels. I ain't got a towel one. You know? Went to J.C. Penney's, and folks, all of my life, my parents' towels have been this thick all of my existence. You can read the newspaper through my parents' towels. That is not acceptable. Not in the bachelor pad. Went to J.C. Penney's. J.C. Penney's, 1979, had towels this thick, $15 a piece. Stood there, looked. Little girl come over, she said, uh, could I help you? I said, yeah. Do you have any more of those towels? She said, do they have to be the same color? I said, no, not really. That doesn't make any difference to me really what color they are. As many of them as the same will be fine, but don't really make no difference. She said, okay, we have more. It's okay. She said, how many do you need? Sixty. <laughs> do the math. You only have to do the laundry every two months if you have sixty towels. She said, 60? So said, I think we have that, man. How are you going to pay for that? Hold on. JCPenney credit card. She said, Yes, sir. Do you want any, other, like hand towels? I said, yeah. I don't need some of those. And washcloths. Yeah, that'll be fine. Oh, my gosh. I had no, no concept of what 60 towels this thick, the volume of space that takes up. I had them in the trunk of the car, in the backseat of the car, in the floorboards. I mean, I drove back to my apartment with towels. It's everywhere. Put my towels up, shower curtain up, if they look fine. You know, about that time, wha, nature call. First nature call in my house. I get to sit on my phone, Stink up my house. I'm leaving the door open. I'm going to do a good job. Proud of myself. there ain't no paper there. (laughs) They're just towels under that little cabinet right there. (laughs) God looks after fools and imbeciles and I qualified in both places because when you buy towels this thick at JCPenney's they wrap them up in tissue paper. So, I was able to rip that four-inch strips, (laughs) got me some paper, and realized, whew, i got to go to the grocery store, okay? You might say blessed, I think cursed. They had just started accepting credit cards at the store. So I got all of the food and necessities, cleaning supplies, that kind of stuff, toilet paper, put on the credit card. Got back, put all the stuff up and said, got all the stuff to cook. No pots, pans, dishes, or plates of any kind. I fixed that. To the store. Bought flatware and tableware. Service for eight. <laughs> I'm the only one there, but I can sit a massive table and I bought High grade stuff. You know, gravy boats, creamers, ladles, mean, All the little silverware is going out. Pots, copper bottoms. Looks good. All with credit card. All with credit card. Called my girlfriend over to fix her a dinner. You gotta understand, a long time ago, the idea was. Wind and dine and she's going to spend the night, that's the goal. And I, I, can, I, I, can, I can cook well, I lay out the table well, these are the plans. After dinner, let me show you the bachelor pad. This would be the living room. There's nothing in it, but this would be the living room. Where we're eating is kind of the kitchen bar area right here. This is the, this is the dining room. This is the kitchen. Here's the master bath, of course there was only one, but this is the master bath. And then this is the master bedroom. She said, you're sleeping in a sleeping bag. I said, I am. She said, I'm not. And she went home. (laughs) Ah! Gonna (laughs) fix that. (laughs) Next day, went straight to Montgomery Ward's, Terrytown Mall. You know, Montgomery Ward used to sell furniture. You know those great big cannonball poster beds, the balls on those tuckers are that big around. That's masculine looking. I walked right up and said, I want that headboard, I want that footboard. I want the mattress and box springs, I want the chest of drawers, I want the night tables that are right there. I -hmm, I want that dresser with the hutch mirror over that, that looks good. uh, yeah, that, that bedspread, that, that comforter set right there, that looks masculine looking too. I want that. I want that little applique on the wall over there. Oh, you got two sets of curtains because that matches the bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want all of that. I want all I want, the, I want the lampster right there. That'll work fine. I want this place. This is what I want. She said, how are you going to pay for that? Master card, I mean, uh, Ward's charge card, she, Mr. Williams. All this stuff is slightly over your limit." I said, oh, come on, look at this. I'm a great credit risk. He said, hold on a minute. She called somebody and said, yes, we got this stupid fool over here that he wants to buy about $6,900, $7,900 worth of furniture that's really only worth about $2,000. Uh-huh. He has no concept that we're going to be charging him 28% interest for the rest of his life on this purchase. Slightly over his limit. Mm hmm. Okay. Mr. Williams, because you're such a valued customer of ours, we've instantly raised your credit up. We get you right into this plus about $150. I said, outstanding, because I forgot to tell you, I need two sets of sheets. Got that delivered. And if you're going to have a swinging bachelor pad, you've got to start in the living room. So I went to the furniture store and picked out, the same way, picked out furniture. And I just laid down credit card after credit card, filled it up, fill 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 it up. Got the living room. And you know, you got to. You got to have a stereo. And not just one that you can enjoy, one that the whole complex can enjoy with you. You know. Went to the, went to the radio shack. Stereo. If you come up talking to me anytime and I go, huh? <laughs> some of that's firestone, some of that's ah! <laughs> cranked all the way up. Patch the pad. Hot. Sweet and purchased with $6 in the checking account. Everything is on charge card. Everything is on charge card. And the bills started coming in. I owed more money a week than I made. So I started having a bill paying lottery. I took all of the bills, put them in a box, shook up the box, and drew out the winner. I sent them the minimum payment. And I kept pulling them out until the money was gone. And then I went, rest of you lose, better luck next month. With the idea that the same ones wouldn't lose every single month. But some of them did. And then I started rotating the losers. Two, three months behind, pay somebody a little bit, pay two, three months behind, constant. Repo mans after the car. I used to park six blocks from where I lived, walked six blocks, drove two blocks, walked six blocks to where I worked at, and from the villager to the, the Safeway isn't six blocks. Keep the repo man off the car. Way behind in the rent, way behind in everything, realizing that this is a mess. Called my dad, said, "Uh, Dad, I need to come talk to you. Please understand, was there any animosity toward my dad to me? No. I had the choice to stay. I had to pay $25 a week rent. Instead, I went to $265 a month. Couldn't do math well back then. Called my dad up, said, Hey, Dad, I need to talk to you. Can I come out and see you? Oh, yeah, come on out, man. Come out. Said, Dad, stepped in it bad. I owe more money a week than I made. He said, Not my problem. He said, You were my responsibility until the day you turned 18 years old. The day you turned 18 years old, you're your own problem. I said, Dad, I owe more than I make. I got no place else to go. It's not my problem. I said, I need to move back in. He said, It's not my problem, but mom's not here and I can't make the decision without talking to her about it anyway. I said, Well, I, I got no place else to go. He said, Well, I'll talk to your mom. I'll call you about it." I said, well, call me at work because they already turned the phones off. I said, by Friday I'll be homeless. Call me, he said, come back out here, we'll talk about it. That was on Thursday. And he said, you can move back in, but there's a couple of situations. First of all, we don't have any room for you. I said, huh? He said, no, we turned your room into something else. I got up, walked down the hallway, look, mama has a crafting room where Gary used to sleep. You know, a couple of years ago, they made a, a commercial like that. My kids know this story. The commercial come out, they go, <laughs> Daddy, look, there's you. <laughs> yeah, that was me. So, we've got no room for you. You can move back in, but you're going to have to sleep in a sleeping bag and live room floor. I said, Not a problem. So, there's some major stipulations, though, that you're going to have to agree to before you move back in. I said, OK, what are those? He said, First of all, you have to have a second full time job. I said, I start Monday. I've already taken care of that. Please understand, folks, I, I'm not lazy, okay? I was raised to not be afraid of work. I actually, during that time, worked two full-time jobs and two part-time jobs at the same time. I worked at a grocery store. I worked at a sporting goods store. Right over here at Hardee's, number seven at the time. I, I flipped most of the burgers you ate as kids, I promise. And I delivered pizzas when I wasn't there. I worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week, without exception. He said, you can't eat any of my food, but you can bring food in here to cook and clean up. Your mama doesn't cook for you. You must clean up after yourself. Your mama won't do your laundry, but you can do your laundry in our washer and dryer. Use our washing powder and that kind of stuff, but you must make sure you gather up and do a full load. I didn't have to do everybody's laundry, but I had to do full load, just common sense stuff. I said, okay, I can do all that, ain't a problem. He said, next major stipulation is, I don't want to see any sign that you're in my house. Your sleeping bag, your razor, your toothbrush, it's all to be left in your car. Every day when you get up, you pack it up. It all is to be left in your car. I want to see no, I don't know. I do not want to see you asleep on my floor. I don't want to see you going to bed on my floor. You can be here, but I don't want to see that you're here." I said, okay. He said, you have six months, free rent. At the end of six months, you're homeless. You're getting out of my house. You're never moving back in, ever again. You should understand, when you leave that time, you're done moving back in. Never in your wildest imagination think you're ever moving back in. I said, okay. I mean, I have nothing, I have no other choice. The reality is I used my parents' home as a place to take a nap, take a shower, and get a quick bite to eat. That's what I did. After five months, I was able to find a roommate. Agreeing to move out into an apartment. move to an apartment in Nashville, North Carolina. And I was not in any way, shape, or form financially ready to do that. But I was going to have to leave in a month. And I found somebody that was ready to share an apartment. So I moved out. But I was still financially as stupid as you can get. I would pay down a credit card and charge it right back up. You know, I'd use a credit card to pay off another credit card. Stupid stuff. That was just continuing, because I hadn't learned anything. Working all the time, that continued literally, and then in October of 1983, this cute blonde chick started at the grocery store. I was just checking her out from a distance because she was dating somebody else, you know, and I've never tried to infringe on somebody else's territory. but. In February, she asked me out, which means that I ain't infringing on nobody's territory. And we went out, and as I told you the other week, on that date, I proposed. I had $695 available on a credit card. We went to Zales Jewelers. I bought a diamond for $695, and we were engaged that night. We had set a very quickly decided to set a date for being married that coming September. And needless to say, when I brought her home from that date, my future in-laws were not happy with me. And after a couple of days, they said, we're not paying for the wedding. I said, shove it in! I will! And if I am, we're getting married in 16 days. We got married in 18 days from the day we, I proposed. Do you know she brought debt into this thing too? <laughs> I didn't pay my electric bill so that we could go on our honeymoon to Raleigh, North Carolina. Holiday Inn, room 1404. Got made on a Saturday, didn't realize Saturday was drunk night at the Holiday Inn. Drunk night was the night that they they had very low rates on the hotel, so that the drunks from the bar downstairs wouldn't drink and drive. I had such a good time on Saturday night, I thought I'd go ahead and stay Sunday too, and I called down first thing in the morning and said, hey, I think I'd like to stay another night. And they said, told me what the price was per night then, no, we're going home. I had to be at work Monday anyway. Got married, and my wife was still in high school, senior in high school. And on Tuesday, she had her regular annual checkup. I came home from work. She was just sobbing her eyes out. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, I had my regular checkup today. I said, yeah, I know. I said, what's wrong? The doctor said that I couldn't get pregnant. I said, oh, that's terrific. I said, we're broke. We're this much in debt. And uh, again, the price at the time, I said, it's $10 a month you don't have to spend anymore. And since you don't have to worry about that anymore, you don't have to take those anymore. That's fine. Down the road, we'll just adopt children. I love kids, but I, I can love them adopted just certainly as I can love them having my own. That's terrific. Don't worry about that. Tom. About six weeks later, she was throwing her socks up just, just everywhere. Oh, my gosh, she has contracted some kind of rare disease. I rushed her to the hospital, called her doctor on the way there. <gasps> She's dying. You got to meet her there. We're, you know, I'm at the hospital. I mean, I'm a nervous wreck. I mean, the woman's dying. I ain't even got life insurance on the woman yet. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Doc comes out in a little while. He said, congratulations. Said, okay. He said, and... My wife ain't there. He said, there, there's nothing wrong with your wife that eight more months ain't gonna fix. I said, it's gonna take eight months for her to be better. You know? I thought, my gosh, I, I can't afford these kind of doctor bills. I mean, you know. About that time she shows up, he said, No, congratulations. Eight months, you're gonna be a daddy. I said, I'm gonna be a rich daddy. He said, What are you talking about? I said, well, six weeks ago she come see you, and you told her six weeks ago she couldn't get pregnant. He said, no, sir. He said, six weeks ago I told this young lady right now she shouldn't get pregnant. You see, my wife has a hard time understanding the difference between couldn't (laughs) and shouldn't. (laughs) So the daughter's on the way. Even though she had a part-time job after school, very quickly except for going to school, they put her to doing no work. I'm working two full-time jobs, and I know I'm not going to be able to make ends meet. I'm not going to be able to buy formula and diapers and that kind of stuff. And by then I realized my dad was probably smarter than I was. So I called my dad on the telephone and said, Dad, I ain't going to pay my, pay, I ain't gonna be able to feed my family. What do I do? He said, how many hours a week are you working? 100 on average. He said, what you need to do is get on Firestone. He said, I can't not get you on Firestone. i tell you what the process is. You go through the process get on Firestone. He said, we have overtime at Firestone that we can't make people work. They, now they force people to work it, but at then they couldn't. He said, we have overtime that goes unworked. You're already working the, the time. You get on Firestone, you'll be, be okay. So, I went through that process, got on Firestone. He was able to get me. He said, if you get on, I can get you placed within the plant anywhere you want to. And so when I got hired, I said, Dad, just find out where the most overtime is, send me right there, because that's, I, I want all, I want all the work I can. And literally, as soon as my probation period was up, I was working no less than 100 hours a week, ever, ever, no less than 100 hours a week. And I was, I was working in what's called the Banbury. The Banbury at Firestone, that's the name of the machine, it's three stories tall. It's about as big as the footprint of this, this building that we're in right here, three stories tall. And it's, big, it's basically a big mixing plant. They mix rubber. The rubber on your car is not naturally black. Natural rubber is brown, has some gray in it. And they mix pigments and, and vulcanizers and um, staining oil and carbon black, mixing it all together to come up with a black tire because a uniform black is more aesthetically pleasing than the garbage it would look like if they didn't do that, quite frankly. And I worked there. And they have, soap, they have dirt in the bandbury that soap and water will not wash. Carbon black, as an example, is so pervasive of a material, folks, you could take a glass jar, fill it with carbon black, put the lid on, seal the lid, set that jar on your counter, and in a month, the carbon black will be outside of the jar on the countertop. Carbon black will go through your glass jar. Water would not leave it, but carbon black will go through it, okay? and. I mean, literally, you, 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 you could walk right through the, the Banbury, not touch nothing, just go from one end to the other, fast as you go through there, you could take a piece of paper like this, wipe your face, and it'd be black all over it. Okay? They tell you don't worry about it. I mean, like, I mean, literally at the end of every day, you'd see the whole Banbury crew taking pieces of, of paper towel and, and, and up the nose and in the ears, trying to get that stuff out of there a little bit, and you'd get a cold, you'd run black out of your nose. But they'd tell you, don't worry about that, that's normal. You know, so if you guys get a, co- a cold this winter, you know, and, and, you, and, and you, you're, you're running any kind of color but black, you need to rush to the hospital. Because it's supposed to be black, that's what they told us for years. They have stuff there that soap and water won't wash, like, uh, how many of you, y'all know what uh, Scotch guard is, you spray it on fabric and stuff so it don't get wet? Yes? Yes? There's a substance that goes into all tires, that is basically like a very fine powdered Scotchgard, it's called high seal. You mix it up in little bitty baggies and you mix it into the batch. Batch rubber is about 1,000 to 1,500 pounds. And you mix it up, but you weigh it up and put it in these baggies and this stuff gets all in the air, all in the air, all in the air. Goes right through your coveralls. And working 16 hours in that environment, you could come home and run all of the water out of the Tar River Reservoir out of your shower on top of your head, and you still won't be wet. You you literally get out of that shower and go, and you're dry, (laughs) because it just beads right up and falls right off, but yet you still sweat and you still stink, takes three days to wear that stuff off. That's the way it was all the time. Because we were so deep in debt in that process. I'm working all the overtime I can but I can't make any headway because I'm so deep in debt and we're still digging the hole. You cannot get out of a hole you're still digging. We were digging a hole. We owed so much money that literally there was lots and lots of times that we didn't have any food in the house right before payday. We just do without. Baby always had food. Baby always had diapers. Always had formula. We didn't have, we didn't have food to eat. Fasting a day isn't going to hurt you. Went two, three years. Unable to buy heat. Wintertime. Got to buy a used kerosene heater from a guy in a Banbury. Run the kerosene heater 24 hours a day, seven days a week, wintertime. It's supposed to get cold again this week, I think. If you happen to be at a convenience store and you see somebody filling up a kerosene thing, you go stick 20 bucks on their car. Because they're not supplementing their heat. That's all they got. We live that way. Had the lights turned off I don't know how many times. Couple cars repossessed, making $70,000 a year. Couldn't gain ground because we're still doing things stupid financially. I owed every finance company in Nash and Wilson County. And they, they're insidious people. You get a loan there, you make three consecutive payments, they either call you on the phone or send you a letter because you've done such a good job. You can come get another $1,000 or $1,500 just by signing your name, and your payments won't increase but 5 or $10 a month, it just last a lot longer. We were doing that. All through that process. My in-laws kept telling my wife, you need to get a divorce. He's never gonna be nothing, he's never gonna have nothing, and you're gonna drown in that. And even with a young child, you are still young enough and attractive enough that you can do better. You need to get a divorce. And faced with that constantly, she never even thought about it. She had no reason to stay except her promise to me in front of God and these witnesses, until death do you part. It said, for better or worse, it didn't say if it was convenient. When most women in this room would have cut and run. She never even complained. My wife's sister used to shove every piece of jewelry that her husband bought her from Walmart in my wife's face. Ah, look what I got. She never complained. The first two years we were married, we cut out pictures out of a catalog and wrapped them up at Christmas time and said, if I had any money. This is what you would have. The first Christmas present she ever actually got, I bought her a curling iron. And she never complained, not one time. My in-laws would call my wife up and go, we're going out to dinner, would you like to go? Oh, that's right, your husband does not provide for you in such a way that you can. We'll pay for it if you'd like to go. She said, no, I'll stay right here. And not one time ever complained. We had moved to Sharpsburg into an apartment in Sharpsburg. I'm working 16 hours a day. I'm exhausted. I'm in bed, sleep. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning. God woke her up because she rolled over and punched me and said, you need to get up the kerosene heater. is messed up. And I rolled over and looked at her, and she's covered with soot. I'm covered with soot. The whole house is covered with soot. I got up, went downstairs, and took the kerosene heater outside, and she got up and checked on the baby and cleaned the baby up and cleaned herself up and cleaned the house up, and not one time ever complained. At this point in time, I can't hardly go past the jewelry store without buying her something. Little trinkets here and there. Her Valentine's Day gift cost $11,000. How you pay somebody back for staying when there was no good reason to? She used to wear clothes you couldn't give away in a yard sale. And not one time ever complained. You got to force stuff on her. She won't buy it for herself. And not one time ever complained. About that time, I was introduced to a guy that used to live north of Charlotte, North Carolina. Now he lives in the Bahamas, Virgin Islands somewhere. Through a friend of a friend of a friend, it was an introduction made. After being around him just a couple of times, I had learned that he was nine years older than I was. time he owned eight or ten homes across the country, private jet, cars that you'd die for. One day I just asked him, literally out of frustration, I said, did you inherit all this? He said, no. He said, as much as anybody is, nobody is ever self-made completely, but as much as somebody is, I'm self-made. He said, my dad will be retiring this year. I said, that's not possible. He said, why do you say that? I said, because you're only nine years older than I am. I've never met a human being willing or capable of working more or harder than I am. And if I put 24 hours a day at this, I wouldn't scratch a scratch on your lifestyle if I did it for the next nine years. And he had made his the vast amount of his money in real estate, business, hotels, um, um, shopping malls, that kind of stuff. I said, it's just not possible. He said, yes it is. He said, I would wager that your entire family is good people, that they work hard, conscientious, do a great job at every, everything they ever try to do, and I bet you everybody's broke. I said, man, you hit that right on the head. He said, you're old enough to know by now, working hard will never make you wealthy. Man, I didn't, nobody ever said that to me. At that instant, I realized when I asked my parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles how to become wealthy. Do you understand? Only somebody that is wealthy that made it from nothing to there could ever tell you how to get that done. If you ask poor people how to be wealthy, they don't have the answer or they would already be wealthy. Didn't realize that until he started talking to me. He said, the only way you're ever going to become wealthy is to learn to make your money work harder than it is possible for you to work. Never heard that before. Drove back to Rocky Mount, thinking about it. Went back to work, thinking about it. Realized that this guy is the only person I think I've ever met, at least that I know of, that could tell me how to become wealthy. So I called him back up on the telephone and said, if it's possible, I'd like to come talk to you for a little bit. So we made arrangements. I went and talked to him. I said, I'd like you to teach me how to become wealthy. Tell me what to do. He said, I'll tell you, but please understand, the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is going to be the most difficult. There's three things you have to do to become wealthy. The first thing is going to be the hardest for you to do, and you, by all accounts that I've seen, will not be able to get this done. I said, well, tell me. He said, and you have to understand, I'm working a swing-shift schedule. Every seven days, I change shifts. Okay? I'm working 16 hours a day, I go to work in a room just like this, there are no windows. I go in when it was dark outside, I would come out when it was dark outside, never seeing the daylight. Or as the shifts changed, I would go in when it was light outside and come out when it was light outside and never see the darkness. There were so many times I'd look at my watch and I couldn't remember. If it was a.m. or p.m., I have no concept. Biological clock gets all messed up. You don't know when you're supposed to eat. You don't know when you're supposed to sleep. Staying on a concrete floor all the time. And rubber literally sucks the lifeblood out of your body. It's It's a death trap there. Because of that, my body physically hurt all the time. Hurt. I used to decide to take a day off at Firestone by taking my hand and taking a white sheet of paper and running my open hand down the white sheet of paper, and if there were five blood trails, then it was time to take the day off because your hands would crack and bleed from the rubber. Five trails, time to take a day off. I hurt all the time. I was physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted all the time. I was this close to going postal 100% of the time. Guy says, the first thing that I'm going to tell you is the hardest thing for you to do. I said, just tell me, I'll do anything you tell me to do. He said, the first thing you've got to do is work on your attitude. I said, what? He said, you have the worst attitude I've ever experienced in my life. He said, you cannot become successful with that kind of poison spewing out of you all the time. It's killing every relationship you have. Nobody would want to work with you. It's, you're never going to be successful with that kind of an attitude. I said, how am I supposed to work on my attitude? He said, there are books on it. Read books. Read books. He said, they have tapes on it. Listen to tapes, but you're going to have to work on your attitude. I said, what else? He said, do you ever go to church? I said, rarely. I work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. A swing shift rotation schedule. If I'm off when church is in session, I'm exhausted. He said, I didn't ask you if you went all the time. I asked you, do you ever go? I said, yes, on a great rare occasion I go if I think I can stay awake. I said, great. Do they pass an offering plate at the church you attend? I said, I had never seen a church didn't ask for money. Of course they pass an offering plate. He said, Outstanding. He said, when the offering plate comes past, how much do you contribute? I said, contribute. Look, Jack, there are times my wife and I do not have food to eat before payday, and you put in. Are you kidding me? They will have a sign on it that says, Gary, you're broke. You can take some out. Put in. I said, that offering plate is for those that have extra to help support the church. He said, no, young man, that's where you're wrong. God said, if you give him the seed, he will grow your crop. You have not because you gave not first. I said, let me see if I can explain this to you, buddy. I don't have the money to eat every week before I get paid again. How am I supposed to give away money I do not have? He said, it's pretty simple. He said, what is your least favorite meal? I said, fried wings, macaroni and cheese. It still is to this day. Okay? Please also understand, I've been hungry. There ain't enough men in this room that could force-feed me fried weenies and macaroni and cheese. You will have to do it to my unconscious dying body. That's the only way it's going to happen. Okay? And my daughter loves the stuff. She has her own apartment, school. She says, Daddy, how about come down here? I'll fix you dinner. What you going to fix? Fried weenies and macaroni and cheese? I hung up on her. He said, you figure out how much your fried wings and macaroni and cheese meal cost and don't buy it. You take that change and you put it in a jar on top of your dresser. And I don't care how long it is, if it's days, weeks, or years, you do that every week. And the next time you get your butt to church, you take that money and you put it in the offering plate and you start there. I said, what else? He said, you have to find a way to be positively involved in other people's lives. Your wealth will be directly proportional to the positive effect that you have on other people's lives. Bill Gates is the wealthiest man in the world because your computer and your computer and your computer and my computer can talk to each other. Sorry as Windows is, that is the way it is. Because everybody's life is enhanced by that. He's the world's wealthiest man. I said, let me get this straight. You want me to work on my attitude. You want me to give money away I do not have. And now you want me to help people I don't even know or like. See, that pretty much covers it. I said, what a crock of crap. I come in here and ask you how to be wealthy, and you give me this spiel, you give me no help. You give me no help. He said, I've given you all you need, and I've got to go catch a plane. I'm late for a board of directors meeting, and he got on his jet and flew away, and I went back to building tires, and I thought about it. What's he get out of telling me this? Nothing. I'm the one that came to him and asked. Do you understand? He didn't come. Please understand. Success ain't never come jumping down your throat while you're watching a football game, drinking a six-pack of beer. You gotta go get it. I ask. He didn't come shoving it down my throat. I went and asked. He gets nothing out of me doing it. Nothing. What well, I gotta give up. Fried wings and macaroni and cheese. It's the only thing I had to give up to do that. Got books at the public library. Andrew Carnegie said you could, you could hide the secret to wealth creation available to the public in plain sight. They'll never find it if you put it in a book in the public library. Books. Started doing the thing. Fried wings, macaroni and cheese, not buying it, putting it in a jar. First thing you learn, you're still broke. Not more broke, just still broke. And if you're not more broke, just still broke, you're better. And it ain't magic, don't happen overnight, but it works. Firestone passed the rule that you could bring a CD player or cassette player to work. I bought books on tape, played them until the tape broke, literally, same tape, over, over, and over. I can do Zig Ziglar better than Zig Ziglar can do Zig Ziglar. <laughs> Giving the money away like that, attitude starts getting better. I talked to this person about six times after that point, as I can think back on it. Basically every time I talked to him, he'd say, things are getting better, I can tell. What are you doing? Reading books, listening to tapes, said, Zig Ziglar, I got everything he's ever done. He says, well, there's other stuff out there besides Zig. He said, Give me some other suggestions, books to listen to or read. Did those, some of those are on your book list. giving the money away. He said, how are you doing with that? I said, I'm working up. He said, well, in Malachi, it says that your tithes and offerings open the windows of heaven to pour blessings into your house such that your house cannot hold. Your tithe is 10%. Your tithe only gets you sustenance. It gets you a roof over your head, it gets you clothes on your back, it gets you what everybody else has. But it, above the 10% is where God says, open the windows of heaven and pour blessings into your house such that your house cannot hold. He said, up to 10% you've got to do at church. He said, beyond that place, you have to give to any godly cause as you're led. And the cool thing, it's the only place that I know of in the Bible where God says, test me on this. Y'all are broke because you don't. By this time, my life is getting better to the point, he could have told me to jump off a bridge and I'd have probably given that a shot. But he also asked, how are you being positively involved in other people's lives? I said, I can't do that. I work at Firestone. I build tires for a living. If you took this set, these two sections and closed them, a tire building machine is this big, this, this section of this room. It's a one-man job, very isolated. So I work 16 hours a day. I don't, I don't see anybody. There's nobody to help. He said, you have to find a way. You'll never, ever reach. Where you want to financially, if you don't, reach and help other people. I said, tell me how to do that. He said, every person has to find their own path. Every person has to find their own path to that. Come back. and Please understand, even as you work on your attitude, you relapse. You know, the garbage is in here forever. Never comes out. I'd worked about 20 hours one day at Firestone coming home here in Rocky Mount. Stopped out here at Sunset Avenue in, in 60, 64, 301 64, or Sunset Avenue in 64. Stopped at the light. It was a long light. I, I was driving a car that I bought from my in-laws for $800. Piece of crap car. Hearse size station wagon. Windows rolled down about six inches. Air conditioner didn't work. It's August. I'm hot. I'm tired. And the attitude has gone away. Guy pulls up next to me in a two-seater convertible Mercedes. Ivory, blue leather, top down, one of these pretty people with hair, you know? Music playing just softly, I mean not rock and roll stuff, just soft music playing, and I'm sitting there sweltering in this car, stinking, and I look out there, and here this guy is. He don't appear to be all that much older than me either, and through my little six inches of window space I said, how could I have one of those? I figured he was going to go, he's a nut, and drive off. But he said, you need to read a book, and he hollered out the name of a book. It was was such a shock to my system. I turned and went to the mall and bought it. The book really isn't all that relevant to you. Uh, It was at the time called Wealth Without Risk. It is now called More Wealth Without Risk. They've added about six chapters to it. But I went and got the book. It was the first time in my life anybody had ever explained compound interest. And this book explained it that you could do it so that it worked for you. I mean by then I knew how it was working for wards. (laughs) But I never knew it could work for me. And in that book he also explained that you could manipulate an IRA or 401k to get a better return than what most people were doing. Which meant zip to me because I didn't have one. But I had been buying stock at Firestone stock purchase plan, and I started buying stock at Firestone so that I could eventually one day fire my supervisor. That was my objective. I was buying a half a share a month, (laughs) and one day, whoa, 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 yeah, one day, I'm going to have enough that he's going to walk in, I'm going, you're fired, you know? But I was in the stock purchase program. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe God puts things in your life to prepare you for what comes next. Give you opportunity to make the right choice. Sad thing about that choice? I wonder all the time, when will God be done with his patience for you? Gives you the opportunity a lot. I was purchasing the stock. I just read the book. Bridgestone offered to buy Firestone. Firestone stock was trading for $43.50. I'm sorry, $41.50. And Bridgestone offered us like $58 a share. They went back to Japan, happy about it, told everybody in Japan they were going to buy Firestone. Firestone's management then received an offer from Pirelli Tire for $64 a share. And basically, we're going to accept the offer because, again, there's a question of honor. Bridgestone, being Asian culture, Japanese culture, don't like to lose face. So they counter-offered at eighty-three dollars and fifty cents a share, and I took them up on their offer instantly. I sold all the stock that I had, and they bought Firestone. I instantly started reading every book I could find on the stock market. I just made a hundred percent return. Everybody understand? I, came, I remember telling my wife, I will do that again in my lifetime. I don't know how, don't know when, but I will do that again in my lifetime. And I started reading everything I could get my hands on about the stock market. No sooner than Bridgestone bought Firestone, they rolled over our stock purchase program into the 401 k And I had just read that book about how to manipulate a 401 I did not use his techniques, but because if it could be manipulated, then I would investigate the possibilities of that and I figured out how to do what I now call the ocean tide technique and I did the ocean tide technique in my 401k. Never made less than 30% a year. Averaged over 64% a year and had years over 100. Just buying and selling mutual funds inside the 401k. And I'm pouring money into the 401k. I am putting in the maximum amount allowed by law into the 401k. I worked overtime and figured it up to the nth degree how much overtime would let me take that 401k to the maximum contributed allowed by law by anybody in the country and worked my overtime to get it to that point and then stopped. Continued that process. At that point in time, I'm just working for the 401k. I'm trading for I'm I'm planning to never leave. I'm planning to never leave. Talked with the guy in Charlotte. How's things going? Psst. Fabulous. Bills are getting better. Not out of debt, but they're getting better. Attitude's better. He said, I can hear that. How are you doing as far as giving away? I said, "I give away and I give away and I give away." He said, "Cool. He said, "You can't outgive God. You can try, but you'll always get back more than you ever give away." I said, "Cool, I'm all, I'm all about that. That's fine." He said, "What are you doing to help other people be positively involved in their lives?" I said, I build tires. Can't do that." He said, "You must find a way." I was doing a trade in my 401K, digging up my profits. Employee rode by on a bicycle. It's about 3,000 people there at any one time. It's a great big place. It's 500 bicycles in use any given shift. Bicycle rode by an employee on it. I went, holy moly. He don't know how to do this. Because if he knew how to do what I just did, he would not be on that bicycle. He'd be figuring up how much money he just made. So the next employee that rode by on the bicycle, I went, come here, let me tell you about your 401K. The bicycle kept going, but I had him. He said, he's a nut. I kept screaming at people, let me tell you about your 401K, let me tell you about your 401K, let me tell you about your 401K. And then, he's a nut, he's a nut, he's a nut, he's a nut, he's a nut. I remember there was a new hire at Firestone. She worked right next to me. First day, I started pounding on her about, let me help you with your 401K. She'd tell you now, and she's not here tonight, she's a student at this point in time, but she went to all the employees and said, does that nut ever shut up about that 401K? k?" no, he never shuts up about it. When I left Firestone, she took over my machine. She'd tell you one of the biggest mistakes she's ever made in her life was not listening when well, I was trying to talk to her about her 401 k Told everybody nobody wanted to listen. When I worked at Firestone, they had a couple of rules. You could not lose your job unless you flat out refused to do it or unless you hit somebody. Other than that, you can do just pretty much about whatever you want to, okay? I have cussed a supervisor up one side and down another. I've cussed a supervisor, put things together, he had to go look up when he got home. Can't be fired. As long as you've got your tires, don't refuse your job, don't hit nobody, you can do whatever you want to. Actually had a guy when I was there, and I don't know if that's still the same policy or not, but I actually had a guy when I was there during the 12-8 to 8 shift. He was wearing ratty, tore-up jeans, and somebody made the comment, hey, you might as well be naked wearing them jeans. He thought, I wonder if I can do that. <laughs> Took all of his clothes off, built tires in his steel-toed boots all night long. That's the only thing he had on for eight hours. <laughs> Supervisor come up, what are you doing? He said, look at my tires. He said, don't get hurt. And got on his bicycle, <laughs> rode away. Ten minutes to eight next morning, putting on his raggedy clothes, and out the door he went. Can't be fired. Can't be fired. Lots of strange stuff there. As a tire builder, you have to build your tires. But there's a guy that is a setup man, he's like a junior maintenance guy. You turn your light into maintenance, he has to come to your machine, or he'll be fired. I built me some tires up turned turn the light on. Little setup guy comes up, hey, yeah, what's up? Turned the light off. nothing, let me tell you about your 401k. He said, that the only reason that light was on? I said, it is. He rode off. I built me some more tires, turned it on, he come back. He has to. He'd be fired. This went on for weeks. Finally, he said, oh, I've had it with you. I'm going to tell the supervisor. I said, okay. Supervisor comes riding up, he said, the setup man just keeps telling me, you just have that light on to tell him about that 401k. I said, pointed at my number of tires. He said, oh, you're well ahead. I said, yeah, let me tell you about your 401k. He got on his bicycle and left too. I built me some extra tires up, turned the light back on. So that man came back down there. He said, what's up? I said, let me tell you about your 401k. He said, "Is that soy supervisor been down here yet? I said, he has. I tried to tell him about the 401k too. He said, I have had it with you. What do I gotta do? Get you off my back about that 401k. I said, it's pretty simple. I said, go right down to the break room, move your money from here to here, and then come back and tell me How much money you have in your 401k?" He said, "'That's all I gotta do?' I said, "'That's all you gotta do for now.'" He did that, come back, told me. He said, "'Now what?' I said, "'Nothing.'" He said, "'Well, are you done bothering me?' I said, "'No, I'm gonna bother you one more time.'" He said, "'When?' I said, "'When I turn the light back on.'" It was about a week later. It's the first peaceful week he's had in a long time. I turn the light back on. He comes riding up, "'What's up?' Nothing. But this will be the last time. I ever bother you about your 401K, I'll never say another word to you the rest of your life about your 401K. I said, he said, what do I got to do? I said, you go to the break room, you move your money from here to here, and you come back and tell me what your balance is, and I'll never say another thing to you the rest of my life. He said, thank God. Jumped on his bicycle, rode down there, and you could tell something was up because the break room from my machine is about a half a mile, three-quarters of a mile away. And from the break room to my machine, all you could hear was, "Ah!" He said, I made $7,000 in a week. I said, yeah, I know. Ain't it cool? He said, you know what you're talking about. I said, ain't it cool? Then he was like John the Baptist running through firestone. He He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. and I started helping those people with their 401k. And instantly, my life exploded to the upside. The sad thing is there are people at Firestone that have over a million dollars in their 401k today, but have not seen fit to come into this class yet. And understand what real freedom would be if they were here. But my life exploded to the upside. I mean, everything was getting better, and that was the last piece of the puzzle, helping people in their form k okay, my life exposed to the upside. I did the math, retired, left my job, make money, stock market, 37 years old, March 15th, 1997, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, never to go back to work again.